you have your Bible this morning, I would invite you to turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 11. As we continue our walk through the story, this morning we'll be looking at the latter part of David's life. Now in the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab with the king's men and the whole Israelite army, and they destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. Well, spring is when kings go off to fight their battles. That's because the weather cooperated and they could travel the roads. But something's different this year. David's a king, but David's not going to war this spring. Evidently, David said, you know what, guys, I'm going to sit this one out this spring. And he sent Joab to handle it. What David was about to discover was that he wasn't as safe as he thought he was back in the palace in Jerusalem. There's a different kind of enemy lurking in Jerusalem. An enemy that fought not with swords and arrows, but an enemy of the soul that dealt with deception and lust and greed, and as we'll see, even murder. While Joab was out winning the battle against the Amorites, David was about to lose one of the most significant battles of his life. Verses 2 to 5 describe it very succinctly and, and very much to the point. A lot happens in these few verses. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, Isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Elam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. She had purified herself from her uncleanness. Then she went back home. And the woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. So here's David. The ESV actually uh, translates it the most accurately. It was late afternoon and David was on his couch. Basically, he was taking a nap. He gets up and he goes up out on the roof and the palace was up above all the other buildings and, and, and the uh, other houses. And of course, they made use of all of the area of the houses, including their roofs. And so there are many things that we don't know here. We, didn't, we don't know if David went up there looking for something. We don't know if he had been up there many times and had an idea what he might see, or if this was just a rare exception. Whatever it was, though, the image that David saw, he looked at long enough to burn into his mind so that when he walked off of that roof, he could not get the image of this woman out of his brain. 
And so he sends out people to find out who this woman was because he is, he's enamored with her. They go out and they come back and they report to him, David, number one, she's a married woman. She has a ring on her finger. Number two, she is the wife of one of your great warriors who at this very moment is out fighting for you and for your kingdom. And so one would conclude that that was the end of the story. And for the average man, in fact, for probably just about anyone in Jerusalem it was, but David was not an ordinary man. David is king. That means he has power. He has unlimited power. What the king wants, the king gets. Those of you who saw Lord of the Rings, and if you didn't see it, Frodo is, in, in the play, Frodo the character is probably the least person you would ever expect to struggle with power. He's a very humble, the kind of guy that would never even desire power, and yet when he gets this ring upon which whose ever finger it goes on has ultimate power, it's amazing the temptations that come into his life. It's amazing the battle he has with that. You know, we're told that people that are very famous or have a lot of power, a lot of money, actually begin to feel sorry for themselves. And they feel sorry for themselves because they have made a lot of sacrifices, or they feel they have. You say, now what does somebody who has it all sacrifice? Well, they sacrifice all their peer relationships. All of a sudden, they're on a different level, and, and it's not quite the same as when they were just an ordinary person. They lose all their privacy, now there's not a private moment in their life and they begin to feel like, you know what? I have a lot, but I have sacrificed a lot to be here and a lot to get here and, and I, I have this coming. I have this coming. I'm entitled to this. And so David here, though, given an obvious red light, a, full, you know, a, a, a solid red light. She's married. She's married to one of your fighting men. David decides to run the light. And he runs it because he can. Before he knows it, he's under the covers with another man's wife. A man who is out fighting for his kingdom. This is a man, the Bible says, is a man after God's own heart. We're going to talk about that this morning. And the story is only going to get worse from here. So, David sends Bathsheba back to, back to her house. And we can only assume that this is going to be their little secret. But then David gets the unexpected call from Bathsheba. David, uh, I need to tell you something. I'm, I'm pregnant. And so now David has another decision to make. Is he going to confess or is he going to conceal? Is he going to confess or is he going to conceal? And David decides that he's going to conceal. And he's going to use his power again to conceal because he believes that he can. And so he has a plan. Plan A, he's going to invite Uriah back. He's been out in the battlefield. He's going to give him a night at home with his wife, obviously. 
Uh, he's got one night at home with his wife. Uh, they're going to sleep together, and she's going to call him up in a couple weeks and say, hey, honey, we're, we're expecting a child, and nobody will know. We assume that Bathsheba has been sworn to silence here. We, we assume that she's going along with this. Otherwise, obviously, the plan wouldn't work if she would break the news. And so this is what happens. Uriah is invited home, but David, to his surprise, finds out just how loyal Uriah is, and Uriah says, you know what? My men are out there sleeping in tents away from their wives. I'm not going to come together with my wife. I just couldn't do that because he is a very loyal man. So plan B. David says, well, I'll I'll keep him another night. Uh, I'll get him... uh, celebrating with me and a few too many drinks and, and he'll, he'll lose some of this self-control and, and then or he'll, he'll go and, and he'll sleep with his wife and the plan will work. The plan does not work. And so David goes to plan C. And plan C moves into a whole different realm. Here it is in verses 14 and 15. In the morning... David wrote a letter to Joab, who's the guy out on the front lines, and he sent it with Uriah. And in it he wrote, Put Uriah in the front lines where the fighting is fiercest, then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. Interesting that he sends the note with Uriah. Because he knows that Uriah is so faithful that he will not open that message and see what it says. And so Uriah goes and delivers to Joab his own death sentence. They go into battle. Joab orders something he would never order. He orders them to go close to the walls within the range of the archers, and the archers shoot not only Uriah, but several other men that are with him. And then As they go back to report to David, they're worried because David's going to ask what happens and they're going to tell him and David's going to say, why why did you do something so foolish? The messenger is instructed, just tell David that Uriah died and everything will be okay. All of this so that David can save faith. A husband dies, a father dies because David wants to save face. And so we see covetousness, we see lust, we see adultery, we see possibly even rape, we see lying, we see murder. At least five of the Ten Commandments here are broken in in one swipe. And this is the man after God's own heart. Well, at this point, David's objective has been met. His sin has been concealed. It's gotten much messier than he ever wanted. But now David is going to be the good guy and he's going to take the widow of this fallen soldier to be one of his wives in the palace. There's only one problem. There's only one problem. There's still one witness who's still alive. And that someone was God. 
Remember the story of the little boys going through the buffet line and there's a bunch of apples at the start of the table. It says, take only one, God is watching. Remember the story? And they get to the other end, there's all these cookies and the boy starts stuffing his pockets. His friend says, we can't do that. We're going to get caught. The boy says, no one's looking. He says, what about God? He says, well, he's watching the apples. Yeah. No, God, God sees it all. And I, I don't know, you know, David's a man after God's own heart. Interesting how he was somehow able to act thinking that God would not hold him accountable. So God sends Nathan, one of his prophets. God reveals the whole thing to Nathan. And Nathan walks in with a very, this very intriguing uh, encounter with, with the king. And rather than just confront him directly, he tells a story. We see the story there in, in verses, chapter 12, verses 1 through 4, of a, there's a man who, who has like more sheep and, and livestock than he can count. And then there's a man who has, has just one little lamb. And he loved that lamb. It was the only lamb he had. He loved it. He cared for it. He nurtured it. He would sleep with it every night. The traveler came into town. The rich man went and took the lamb, the one lamb from this man, and slaughtered it and gave it to his guest. And David, the text tells us, it says, David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. Now, now obviously this was a <clears throat> not a good thing to do to take this man's pet, but this, we're talking, the story here was about an animal and certainly David was upset, but it's interesting that David, the, the, the word here that's used, David was just absolutely enraged. And why was he enraged? It had nothing to do with this pet. This was, the, this was the emotion of David. This was the anger at himself coming out here in this situation. This was his unresolved guilt in the situation which was about to be revealed. And in a, in a powerful, powerful moment, when Nathan makes his declaration that this man should die, Nathan says, David, you're the man. You are the man in the story, and David is caught. Well, there's some really important lessons here in this story, and we'll bring in a little bit more. Of the There's a lot more to David's life, obviously, than this. We'll, we'll look at that a little bit. But I, I want us to take uh, the rest of our time this morning, and I want us to, to look at three very important lessons here. Because there are some powerful lessons, and these are lessons, by the way, that have been repeating themselves all through the story. It's not just in David's life. You'll see that as we go through them. But David's life is a very important life. Uh, there's three, about 3,000 characters in the story. That's quite a cast, isn't it? About 3,000 characters in, in the story. And David is referenced in about 141 chapters of the Bible. So what do we learn from this man's life? Here's the first thing. We see that the seed of evil is in every man's heart. This is a man after God's own heart. This is a man who had a heart for God. 
And yet, look where he ended up. How many of you here believe this morning you could do what David did? Okay, I want you, all, I want you to do something for me. Just do this, okay? Forget the question. I, I want you to just raise your hand. Everyone raise your hand. <clears throat> okay, now we have an honest answer to that question. I'm going, I could never do that. I, I could never order someone to be assassined. Have you ever been in a place, how many people here have ever been in a place of absolute power? I mean, how many of us know what it would be like to be in that place where whatever you said would happen? You know, at, at our house, we have, we have a lot of these little things. Here, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw you one. You guys can pass that around. <coughs> Good catch. This is an acorn. Do you know that I, we have thousands of these in my yard? They fall like raindrops in the fall. And uh, I just quit picking them up because the first year I went out and picked them up, I thought, this is a full-time job, picking up these, these stupid little acorns. And they don't really do anything except about one out of a thousand one out of a thousand will fall into a spot. It'll, it'll find some soil where it can get pressed in and where it's got enough moisture and just enough light. And you know what will happen? It will sprout an oak tree. It doesn't happen very often. But given the right conditions, given the right soil, given the right place, this little thing will sprout, and if it continues to grow, it will eventually grow into some, I have them in my yard. I mean, massive, massive oak trees. So we look at this and we say, you know, I, I could never do what David did. Given the right soil, the right place, the right time, you are capable of some of the worst deeds of evil because in our hearts at its core, is evil. And the Bible is deceptive above all else. Who can understand it? And so we see here that if we don't manage these seeds of evil in our lives as inconspicuous as they might be, they can sprout and begin to develop into things that we never imagined possible in our lives. I would not commit adultery. But what if the soil changes? Here's my point. Don't underestimate or become careless about the potential for evil in your life and in mine. It was John Owen who said, you need to be killing sin or it will be killing you. Casting Crowns has a song, Slow Fade. It says, people never, people never stumble in a day. Remember that song? So it's a slow fade when you give yourself away. It's a slow fade when black and white turn to gray. And thoughts invade and choices are made. A price will be paid when you give yourself away. People never crumble in a day. It's a slow fade, one choice at a time. And we see that here in the life of David. Maybe it began with his decision not to go out to war and stay in the palace. Maybe it wasn't that decision to go up on the roof Maybe looking for something he shouldn't have been looking for. 
and then to inquire, and, and then to go through a red light, and, and then the next, and the next, and the next choice. And eventually he got himself to where he was. Perhaps David was in a time of kind of a loss of vision, and maybe he was tired, and maybe he was feeling kind of alone, and you know, he had all these prayers when Saul was chasing him, and, and he was crying out to God. You can read it in the Psalms. And now Saul's gone, and the kingdom is secure, and all of his prayers have been answered, and he is successful and popular and wealthy, and life is a time of ease. That's sometimes when we're the most vulnerable. Matthew Henry said, when we are out of the way of our duty, we are in the way of our temptation. In the book of Hebrews, we find in Hebrews 3.13, it says this, but encourage one another daily, as it is called today. The ESV says it, and probably more accurately, but exhort one another daily. Actually, that word has a sense of meaning confront one another. Hold each other accountable daily. And why are we to do that? So that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Sin has a way of deceiving us if we're not careful. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12 and 13, it says, So if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, it doesn't say he will take it away. He says he will provide a way out so you can stand up under it. He will provide a way out. God had a way out for David. He had several ways out at any point in this decision making. And you know what? David chose to go his own route. He had a choice to confess or conceal. Confession was the way out. Don't think it couldn't happen with you. There is potential for evil in, in every one of our hearts. And you know what? We see that in all these, ma all these great men of God all the way through the story. Here's the second thing. And we have seen this time and time again. The consequences of sin. We saw it in Moses. We saw it in Paul. And now we see it in David. You know, in the Exodus, we see it in the people of Israel. They, they, made those, they disobeyed God. And what happened? They didn't get to go in the promised land. Moses didn't get to go into the promised land. And we saw God be gracious to Saul, but Saul sinned, and Saul is stripped of being king. And now we see David. And I have to be honest with you, and maybe you've had this thought, it almost seems like God's playing favorites with David. I mean, look at Achan. Remember, he's the guy that took some stuff, took some silver, and hid it in the floor of his tent. And, you know, what happens? He loses his life. His whole family's wiped out with him. Now, that's, you know, that's bad to take some stuff you're not supposed to. But, I mean, what David did in comparison to me seems a lot worse. How come David didn't lose his life? 
Look at Saul. Saul gets stripped of being king and eventually gets killed in battle. Sure, he, he, made, he made mistakes. He took spoils that he wasn't supposed to. He grew impatient when he was waiting for Samuel and sacrificed early. But those things almost seem in, a lot smaller than what David here is responsible for. And yet David is still king. What's going on in the story? Well, sometimes I think we forget the consequences of David's sin. Look in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 11 through 14. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity upon you. I want you to imagine this picture. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you, and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all of Israel. And then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan replied, The Lord has taken away your sin. You're not going to die. But because by doing this you've made the enemies of the Lord show utter contempt, the son born to you will die. I wonder if there weren't times in David's life in the coming weeks and months where he, where he woke up and said, I wish I was dead. I wish God had just taken my life back then. I mean, you start to think about what David went through and the consequences of his sin. God's, you know, the, the prophet said, God has forgiven you. That's not an issue here. We're not talking about forgiveness. We're talking about consequences of sin. And so we see that this son is born out of wedlock. And so Bathsheba comes and they have this son. And just as the Lord said, this son dies. And David lives for the rest of his life with the knowledge that his son not only died, but his son died because of his sin. Think about that one. And then his daughter is raped by the half-brother. Then the half-brother is assassinated and killed by Absalom, the full brother of his daughter. Think about that going on in your family with your kids. And then we see Absalom is finally allowed back to the palace and David won't even look at him for two years. And Absalom is so hurt and so angry and there's so much rage in him that a civil war breaks out, father and against son. Think about that one. And then you are, as a father, driven out of Jerusalem and just as it was prophesied, Absalom sleeps with all of his wives in broad daylight Think about that one. And in the end, Absalom ends up with his beautiful long hair getting caught in a tree and soldiers come up and slay him and David loses that son as well. Don't confuse forgiveness with consequences. I remember a young girl in 
don't know why this stands out in my mind, but I can still see her. She was kind of rebellious at the time. She's in youth group. We're singing around the table. She said, so let me get this straight. So you, you're saying that you can, just, you can just sin and God will forgive you and you can sin and God will forgive you and he'll just keep forgiving you. And, and my answer to the question was, yes, that's true. You, you can take advantage of God's grace. And you know what? We all do that. And God will keep forgiving you, and God will keep forgiving you. But don't forget that for every sin, there's a consequence. And that it affects not only you, but it affects the people around you and the people in your life. We see it in the life of David. The consequences of sin. Here's the last lesson we learn, and that is the importance of the heart. Now, on the outside, if you compare David's sins against Saul's sins, if you look on the outside, David, I think, looks worse than Saul. But we need to come back to this truth that was spoken of David from the very get-go, and here it is. I'm going to quote it, and you'll recognize it. The Lord does not look at the things that man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but God is looking at the heart. And so, on the front end, here is the difference between these two men. Okay? The difference is not seen in the mistakes that they made. Both men can, you know, committed significant mistakes in their life. The difference is how they respond. The difference is how they respond to the mistakes that they have made in their lives. And so if we go back to 1 Samuel, when Saul is confronted, chapter 13, verses 11 and 12, we see here that Saul is confronted. I want you to listen to, to his response. This is when Saul was waiting for Samuel, and, and Samuel didn't come, so he offered, he got impatient, and he offered a sacrifice. And Samuel says, what have you done? And he confronts him, asked Samuel, and Saul replied, Well, when I saw the men were scattering and that you did not come to the set time and that the Philistines were assembling at Mishmash, I thought, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I've not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to offer burnt offerings. And Samuel had a great, what do we call that? Excuse. A great excuse for being disobedient. Saul always had an excuse for his disobedience. We see in chapter 15, when he, the men kept some of the things that God said they were to destroy. Listen to Saul's response again. All his men marched past him. Or excuse me, first, yeah, first Samuel. <clears throat> first Samuel 15 and verse 18. It says, and he sent you on a mission saying, go and completely destroy these wicked people, the Amalekites. Make war on them until you've wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? So Saul's confronted. And listen to his response. But I did obey the Lord. Saul said, I went on mission. The Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agod, their king. And the soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder and the best of what was devoted to God in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God. Samuel says, you know what? It is better to obey than to sacrifice. 
But Saul always had an excuse. And finally, when he confesses and he says, he finally gets the words out, yes, I've sinned. He says, but would you go with me to bring honor to me in front of the elders? It's all about Saul. That sums up Saul's life. It's all about Saul. And David, David was different. He was different in his confession. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 8 to 10. Listen to the contrast. It says, I gave you your master's house, your master's wives into your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. If all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with your sword, took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. And notice what David's response we see here in in verse 13. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. I have sinned against the Lord. We see David had an obedience. When Saul was out to kill him and he had multiple occasions to take his life, what does David do? He's obedient to God. He's remorseful for even cutting an edge off of Saul, the anointed one's cloak. So we see here an obedience in his life. And, and lastly, I, I think this is the key, we see here a heart for God. A heart for God. How many psalms do you see written by Saul? How many psalms do you see written by David? Here's just a portion of a couple of them. Psalm 32. Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him, in whose spirit there's no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. And then I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave my, the guilt of my sin. This was public. This whole sin of Bathsheba It's really like David writing his journal and publishing it for all of Israel to hear his personal confession. You can read Psalm 51, the actual words of confession that is directly related to David's sin with Bathsheba. So, in conclusion... Evil is not always measured by God like we look at outward appearance. In fact, you may be be a very kind, moral, good-looking person, but if you're doing it for yourself, if you're not doing it for the glory of God, then God views that as evil in the heart of man. Before we take sin lightly, we need to remember there's a consequence for every sin. Before we take God's grace before we say, why, well, you know, I can do that because God will forgive me. Yes, he, he will forgive you. But there will be consequence of sin in our lives. You reap what you sow. God is not mocked. And finally, we see that 
you may have made some pretty significant mistakes in your life. But they need not relegate you to the cheap seats in the back of the stadium. I don't think any of us have done anything more than David here. And yet, David is still termed as as a man after God's own heart. And amazingly, when we get to the end of the Old Testament and, and the first words of the New Testament as we started off are these amazing words. Matthew writes, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And who is Jesus Christ? He is the son of David. Father, today we, <clears throat> we hear this story. And Father, we desire for you to speak uh, to us. We don't want just to, this just to be an interesting story. But what are you saying to us in our lives and in our story this morning? Father, what are, you, what are you wanting to say? Lord, maybe there are some, here, some of us here who have failed to realize that there are significant consequences to sins that we entertain in our lives or we, or we justify or we just keep on with. Father, maybe there's some compromises, some things, some little, they're just little seeds right now, like little acorns that we're compromising and we fail to realize that they can sprout and grow into things much bigger. Father, perhaps there are some here that have chosen the road of concealing instead of confession and are in the middle of something right now that, that Father, you are calling to, to confess and to take a different route than, than concealing. And Father, perhaps there are some here that are judging by the mistakes that they've made in their lives that they would never be able to sit anywhere near the front of the stage. That they are relegated for the rest of their lives to some place far away. Lord, you look at the heart. We, we look at things we've done, but you look at the response of the heart. And Father, the broken heart, as David says, a broken spirit you will not despise. So Father, wherever we are today, Lord, just, just give us this kind of heart for you. The kind of heart that David had. Father, we pray that this would be your work in, in each of our lives today. Because Lord, we like David, are far from perfect people. But there is hope for each one of us. There's hope for David. There is hope for Moses. There's hope for Abraham. Father, use them greatly in your story. Men far from perfect, but who had a heart from you. And so, Lord, as David said, put that clean heart in each one of us, we pray. We pray this in your name. Amen. I invite you to stand as we are dismissed this morning. Father, may your blessing go upon us. May the desire of your heart for us as your people be clear to each one of us today. And Lord, may we respond in the way that you're calling each one today. We pray this 
in Jesus' name, amen.